your name correctly for me. Sure. Paula McCartney. And one of the first things I like to know about people is sort of how they got to be creative. So, you know, was it your parents that inspired you or gave you some guidance, some teachers, some life experience? I grew up in a suburb of Kansas and my parents were always doing crafts. My mother makes press flower pictures and my father has done some leather work, and he's been a woodworker his whole adult life, and probably even before that. He and my grandfather built the houses that they lived in in upstate New York. So I have a lot of memories of people making growing up. I I didn't really get into photography, um, which is what I my education is in, until college. I started off by going to the Fashion Institute of Technology for advertising for two years. And the first year I loved it. It was like cut and paste, like literally cutting (laughs) paper and pasting it together to make ads. And then it was writing copy, which was I felt was really creative and I loved doing. And then the second year was all business and math, which I was horrible, horrible at. And I had kind of realized at that point that, you know, when I was 17, deciding what I wanted to do, I hadn't fully researched the career that I had started studying. But at that time, I took a photography class and just really fell in love with it. So it wasn't really until I left home and, you know, like at 18, did I start really making things. I'd always taken pictures on trips, but, you know, in the same way that everybody else does, not in a, not in any sort of more creative way. So it wasn't really until I got to college and was kind of faced with this idea of going into something more business or having a big business aspect to the career that I realized I didn't want to do that. And I wanted to do more of the art practice. They suckered you into that, huh? (laughs) What do you mean? Oh, the art, yeah. Being an artist (laughs) is as much of a business as any other business. It definitely is. And I didn't learn that. And so... You know, with at FIT, I did two years of advertising and earned an associate's degree. And then I did two years of photography and earned an associate's degree. So after four years of college, I had no BFA or no bachelor's degree. But, you know, at that point, I had been in school since I was five and I didn't want to keep going to school at that point. So I worked for a commercial photographer for a year and that was a great experience in the fact that I realized I didn't want to do that because he was a you know a very great person to work for he's a very kind employer but he shot products mostly toys and then did headshots and I had seen so it was a great experience in that I got the experience assisting him and I got experience printing right like I am becoming a better printer on someone else's work which was a very valuable experience that he never, I saw that he was not making his own work, like his personal work, and he just wasn't happy. So it was this great experience and that I realized, okay, I don't want to do this either. And then the year after that, I did a full-time program at the International Center of Photography, and that was amazing. And that's, I think, what like suckered me in because I was taking classes with 
all these fine art photographers who were living and working and showing in the city. And I think that was the first time. And I had these creative classes. I had a class with Sally Gall, who I ended up working for and having a really wonderful um, working and like she's a mentor to me. And I had a class with Pelton Elby and Brico and Stephen Fraley. So I had classes with all these really wonderful, creative, smart thinkers and makers that opened my eyes that like, oh, I could be an artist. Like that's a choice for a career. So that's where I really got suckered in the, the making art and wanting to do that. That's how I wanted to spend my time and my career. And it was really when you said, you know, that being an artist is as much of a business and it like absolutely is. I learned that from working for Sally Gall because she would tell me and I assisted her in her, her dark room and did other just artist studio work for her. And she would always tell me, Paula, you know, it's not just making photographs, it's all this other stuff. And it was really from her that I learned that pretty early on. It was, I was probably in my what do I, mid twenties at that point. So, you know, the relationship was so valuable in so many ways, but especially just kind of that professional practice part that I don't think I really kind of realized I would never put that label on it at that point. <laughs> but that ends up being one of the classes that I've taught at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design for the past 12 years. I've taught there since 2007 is a professional practice class because I feel having learned that it's not just making work <laughs> alone in your studio and then suddenly someone knocks on your door and like picks it all up and puts it out into the world for you. But that's what the movies tell us it will be like. Yes. Or you just sort of assume that's what happens when you're, you know, going around all the galleries in Chelsea <laughs> and seeing, you know, all these gorgeous shows that have been paid to produce and all of that. And, you know, so yeah, it seems like it should be that. But I think knowing the importance and knowing how much time that you'll spend on that other part of it can be super beneficial. And it you know gives you skills that allows you to do the making work part. So I'm kind of a geek in that I do really, you know, it's a class that sophomores have to take. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, that we have to do all this other stuff. But I think that it just pays off so much having those skills of speaking and writing. Well, that's interesting. You you all do it as a sophomore because I've taught it also at my school okay. that I've been at. And generally they wait until like second semester senior year to make you take a professional practice like basically once you're done all your stuff and you're put you're actually putting your portfolio together to try and get an internship or job or a, right or, a or something yeah. that they they wait that long and i always thought that, that was far too late like they, yeah they, they should have been taught that stuff much earlier i think so i mean they have they have a short class as sophomores and then they have a studio length class as juniors which they're then my classes all of the different majors and so it's art and design um and then as a junior they go into within their own major so they can be more specific about what they'll need to do with the professional part of their practice um, no i think it's good because I, you know, I, I kind of joke, but I don't even think it's a joke. It's like, you have to write a really bad artist statement as a sophomore. So you can write a, an okay one as a junior. So that when you're a senior, you write the really good and thoughtful one. It doesn't just come by like all of a sudden you, um, <laughs> all of a sudden you can write it when you're a senior because then you have a, a body of work, right? You need to like start developing that. You need to practice that in the same way you would practice like taking photographs or drawing or sketching or whatever you're doing. And so I think like that's this learn activity in the same way that the the more 
to me, more interesting <laughs> making is this practice activity. I'm 46 years old and I don't flex that writing muscle very much. And like, so my skills are probably pretty poor at this point, but like when you're young, you're, you're constantly making more and more work. And so you're constantly having to sort of use that muscle and write better and better and rewrite and revise and get feedback and all that. But like, as you get older, you, you do it less often. And so maybe you're, you know, like, I feel like I'm at this point, I'm probably not very good at it. But in all honesty, I also feel a little out of touch as far as what is desired when it comes to those kinds of text. Mm-hmm. You know, because like when I was in school, like just to show you, show you the dating on my schooling, when I was in school, one of my professors actually told me that what you should do is start off with a Latin phrase and then you quote a philosopher. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of some sort it doesn't matter Kant, freud whatever right it doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter. who <laughs> just throw in some deep philosophical something or other um and then and then sort of like come and and be a bit um you're like your own cheerleader basically to mm. try to convince everybody how amazing your work is and how stunning and all that kind of stuff and i'm fully aware that that's not true anymore that is right. not what people want no, you're not supposed to evaluate yourself or the quality of your artwork um, in your statements. You're just really supposed to explain what's there and why. <laughs> and I think, you know, what you said is you don't really have the practice doing the writing. I think so living in Minneapolis is so, I, you know, I had mentioned that I grew up in Kansas City. Um, I left Kansas City when I was 18. And I like to say like on purpose, <laughs> I went to New York City and lived there for 10 years and then moved to San Francisco for grad school and lived there for the two years of grad school and the two years afterwards. And then the reason that I moved to Minneapolis was because my partner got a full-time teaching job and we were just like, what would it be like to have an income (laughs) and health insurance? You know, let's try that. But, you know, moving back to the Midwest was a little bit about like, oh, wait, you know, what did I, you know, I left on purpose. Why would I be going back? But the two super positive things I'll say about being in Minneapolis is that there's, and they, they are, I believe they're somewhat related, is that there's a, a huge granting system. So there are state grants, the Minnesota State Arts Board that gives grants on a yearly basis. And then there's the Jerome Foundation for Emerging Artists. And then there's the McKnight Foundation for what's considered mid-career artists, which of course is arguable, right? <laughs> But the, the, the funding for the arts is just amazing. It's so amazing. Which, just so I don't forget my linking the two things, is that there's a lot of artists in Minnesota and in the Twin Cities. And I have just such a great support group and so many people and artists that I can talk to about work and inspire me and just really great friends. And I think that there's so many artists because there is the funding. It seems to me that a lot of people have moved here for one reason or another, or they grew up here, went maybe went to school somewhere else and have come back. So there's a huge artist community for being in the Midwest, which I wasn't aware of when I moved here. But so for the grants, that there's just so many grants, probably each year, there's four different grants, at least that you can apply for that are just Minnesota based, just supporting Minnesota artists. 
And because of that, you write <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so I have found, but I don't think that I would do that if I lived in a state where, you know, there was one grant I could apply to, or I was applying to just the national grants, which feel more daunting, of course, because there's just so many more people and so much more competition. But so I find myself writing all the time. And it's really interesting because, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're not really sure who you're talking to when you're, you know, writing, when you're writing, like, who who are you talking to? And I think the fact that some grants here are, what the big grant is like, or one of the grants is state-based. And so you're talking to a group of your peers because those are the jurors. And so you write those in a very different way than writing the Jerome or the McKnight grants because you're writing to curators and other um, established artists. And so you're speaking in a much different way. So the opportunity for funding is amazing in itself, um, but then the opportunity for learning how to write to different groups of people and talk about your work in different ways has been really valuable too. I mean, I writing is sort of weird for me because I was, like I said, I was horrible in math, but I loved writing in English. <laughs> and so I actually really, it's a little sadistic, but I love sitting down and writing because it almost feels like a puzzle that you're trying to figure out. It always takes five times longer than I think it will, even though, you know, with all this experience writing, but I like that part of it. I love writing. And I, and I can write a very long, eloquent thing. The, the difficulty is when they give you the like uh, character constraints or oh, word, yeah. <laughs> word constraints. Like if you, if you just said, write an artist statement, like I could write it and you would get it by the right. end of it. I mean, it might take three, five pages for you to figure out what I'm doing. <laughs> but like the, the difficulty is trying to be able to take what you could express very eloquently had you, right. you know, endless word space and condense it down to some preconceived idea of how many words or characters they say like 150 is enough. words yes <laughs> i can barely fit my name in 150 words like i mean it's ridiculous like, it is it is very and that's also i think like that's a big part of writing when you're writing for funding right or to apply for an opportunity that you you do you take your very like thoughtfully written piece and you're hacking it up and saying it in a worse way <laughs> so you can see it in a more concise way yes yeah, I recently just applied for something and spent a lot of time and like, you know, word count. How many words do I have now? Okay, five words. I have to get out five words. Oh, I, there was one that I had that I had to basically take out all of the beautiful, eloquent words and replace them with very simple words just to fit the character <laughs> for like count. a character count. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, the word count is definitely more generous because you can at least still use the words that you want to use, <laughs> and you don't have to make contractions out of everything. Oh, it's horrible. But I mean, but I I find it a bit difficult. Okay, now keep in mind I'm a little bit outside the the uh, the active scene of doing this so like mm -hmm. in the united states and keep in mind i haven't been in the u.s in a long time is it normal or is it acceptable if like a curator or an outside writer or even a grant writer if you can hire them if you can afford it like to help you with these writings is that acceptable yeah i believe so i mean i know definitely people have had grant writers write grants for them i don't know i guess i am thinking i'm wondering like could a curator do it probably but would they do it probably not 
<laughs> you know what I mean? They have better things they, to they do have with more, their yeah, lives. Exactly. Yeah. They have more interesting to do than to write someone else's grant. So I have a friend who's a grant writer as one of the things that she does. But I personally can't imagine like writing more grants <laughs> than than I do. But you know, like I said, I've been it's I've been so lucky. I've been really lucky in getting grants here and I've been really lucky in having the opportunity to write them to get that practice because it really just comes with experience, you know, or the more you, the more you write them, the more concise you're able to get, the more thoughtful you're able to write about your work. See, the problem I have with, I have endless problems with the whole granting system. So just bear with me here. <laughs> the, the, the one thing I have a problem with this is that, um, First of all, when I make work, oftentimes I don't actually know what it's about. And, mm, and it takes mm -hmm. me in, like, until the project is either done or even two to five years of reflection on it to even really understand what the work was about. Mm -hmm. But yet when you come to a grant, you have to explain what you want to do before you even make it. And so to me, that's a bit of a paradox. Yeah, I think so. I agree as well. Like I have main projects where I knew exactly what the whole project was going to be and I had it all planned out in my head. And then I went out and made the photographs because like the way that I make photographs is not by just recording the world, but going out to make a very specific picture. I always joke that if I could paint, maybe I would just be a painter <laughs> because I'm trying to show these maybe these landscapes are these kind of peculiar ways of viewing the landscape that I have in my head, you know, and then I'm trying to illustrate that through photography. But then there's some projects that are more abstract that I've finished the whole entire project and it's much harder to talk about and to write about for sure. And so one, you know, one like the state grant here, you have to say exactly what you're going to do, like pretty much exactly. And if you don't, then you're not going to get the grant because it's too abstract and no one can hook onto it. I was just awarded a McKnight Artist Fellowship. And Congratulations. Thank you. In book arts, with an association with the Minnesota Center for Book Arts, and with the McKnight, that's the one that's for mid-career artists, and they want to support your artistic practice and your career. And so you can write some things that you plan on doing throughout the year, but you're not held to any of it. They are supporting you as an artist. And so that money, you could, I mean, they even, they have this like lovely reception for the fellows each year. And they've even said like, if you need dental work because your tooth, you know, needs fixing and you can't even think straight to make your work, go get your tooth fixed. You know, if you want to build out a studio, like whatever you need in support of your work, do that like we support you we're supporting you and your practice not one specific idea not one specific artwork that you're saying you're going to produce and that's just amazing because i don't think i've ever felt more supported as an artist than when being a mcknight fellow because it's just you know like how can we support you you know here's a whole bunch of resources keep making your work i was living in north carolina and the the granting in that state is very hierarchical like like okay. you know so like like certain cities got exponentially more grants and certain okay. cities didn't like okay. the, the the kind of grant you're talking about the sort of like just you know basically show your portfolio and we'll just support you kind of grant mm. where in the city where i was it was only like five hundred dollars 
was the maximum you could receive. Whereas in other cities in the state, it's like $5,000. Oh, oh, got it. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. And how were they? They proportioned it by like the, I don't know, the income levels in the different cities or something, or the cost of living probably in different cities. Okay. But it was, it was just, it was basically, it just wasn't worth the time and effort to receive the money. And this is, this is one of the big things with a lot of grants is that many of them, it takes more time and effort to put in the grant than it would to just go do the project by yourself without the funding. I agree. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, There's a lot. And I think that's too like where you are in your career, right? If you have just graduated with your BFA, applying for a thousand dollar grant that helps you buy the supplies to make a body of work or, you know, allows you to get a book printed inexpensively and put that out. Like that really makes sense. But, and I, and I'm saying this with complete understanding that like I live in a state where there is a lot more money (laughs) available on a yearly basis, but I wouldn't apply for a thousand dollar grant right now because it just, it, you're like what you said, it takes too much time and effort to write the application. (laughs) And that's really sadly only going to go so far that. <laughs> and one of the things a lot of people don't think about is, is they say like, oh, it's so much time and effort to write the thing. Well, what about the amount of time and effort we have to do in reporting the grant when once mm. we've completed it? Like some of those grants are a, the amount of receipts that you have to organize and explanations and PowerPoint presentations or whatever it is you have to do to sort of basically validate how you spent the money can also Mm. be hugely time consuming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think a lot of that too, like that there's more of that with the state grant here because they are then, you know, the taxpayers are wanting to know, (laughs) was this worth it? And luckily a lot of taxpayers in Minnesota think yes, but yeah, you, there is a lot more uh, accountability, right? Whereas like the private foundations are like, we're giving this to you based on your past record and we can see that you're committed to being an artist. So we're going to assume you're going to continue to be committed and not just take a nice vacation <laughs> with the funds. And so I think that there is a difference in that for sure. All right. I have a question for you. Totally random because okay. I was reading your CV. Slightly off topic actually very off topic okay. i saw i saw that you had a piece you have you're in the collection of the smithsonian is that correct yes i'm always fascinated how did that come about okay so that came about through a mcknight photography fellowship one of the jurors was the the curator of photography at the time at the smithsonian and after getting the grant he called me which was amazing because usually you don't really have a connection to them afterwards and just said I just really wanted to say that I liked your work and you know let's keep in touch congratulations and I kept in touch with him and it probably was I think it was probably a year later he called me and he said I want to get some of the bird watching photographs for the collection and I was like great (laughs) and it, it happened through that so it happened through him seeing my work in the during process of the photography McKnight Fellowship. So that, that ended up being even more amazing. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, one of my, another one of my pet peeves, I feel like I'm on a rant today, but one of my other things is that they, there are so many competitions. And in the old days, like when, when I was a wee young budding emerging artist, the idea of these competitions and these grants and these things like this were to try to connect with the jurors. Like that was the point. Like I even remember my, my professor saying like, 
don't worry about what the competition is worry about who the juror is because that's why you enter it because you want to connect with them you want to get your work in front of that person but there are so many competitions these days and so many of these jurors i feel like don't do that extra step and don't try to connect with the people that they find interesting in the competitions. So like to hear that something, somebody did get some benefits out of that. It's very nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's because it's the, you know, they probably initially looked at, I don't know, a hundred portfolios and like narrowed that all down, right. To maybe 15. And then there were four finalists. So he had spent work time with my work throughout this sort of process. And then because it was such a smaller pool, right. That he was like really looking and actually looking at the physical work at that point, I think that's able to happen. Right. But then when these curators are during things where there's like a thousand applicants, for me, I wouldn't remember any of them <laughs> at the end, you know, like I don't have the retention for that. So I think, you know, I think these smaller opportunities make a big difference. And you're also represented by, and I'm going to butcher the name, Copekin. Oh, no, um, Copekin. So I had a show at Copekin Gallery in L.A., Oh, I'm blanking on the year, but several years ago. So I just had one show. I don't have any representation right now. But then, okay, then that leads on to a different question. Are you represented, which you already said no, so let's move on past that. You know, but you ha- have you been represented by galleries? I have in the past. And I had probably an eight-year relationship with a gallery. And then I felt like it was time to move on. And then I am realizing that, you know, now with COVID, it's a whole different thing, right? Because I think galleries were struggling to begin with, you know, in the last several years. And then now it's a whole different, you know, it's, you know, everyone's just kind of hanging on, right? Artists and galleries alike. And I do, there aren't, there are a lot of amazing art spaces. And then we have two wonderful museums in Minneapolis, but there aren't galleries, per se. There's one really amazing gallery, Weinstein Hammond's Gallery, but they show like Alex Oath and like very, very established artists. Um, So there isn't really the gallery, I guess, system or scene here. And then the fact that I live in Minneapolis, I usually try to go back to New York once a year, but it's, I'm finding that it's just like super hard to have any sort of organic relationship with any gallery because not living in the same city, you can't drop into all the openings, you can't have these organic conversations, you can't stop by and have sort of like a really, not that anyone has a wide open schedule, but an open schedule to make it really work. So I would like that kind of relationship again. Um, but I, I don't want to say I've given up, but I've almost like, it feels definitely on hold with COVID. It definitely, definitely feels on hold because I can't go to New York now. And then it's just, you know, not the time. I've had some conversations with a gallery and they've been interested, but I feel, it doesn't feel maybe quite as, I don't know what the word is. I don't want to say like heartbreaking because that feels a little too strong. But so one of the jobs that I had when I lived in New York is I worked for a photography gallery. And so I saw everything like from that side of the experience. And so I know that I, I, and I think from my experiences, like 
it's not just enough for a gallery director to really like your work. They can love your work, but that does not mean that they're going to give you a show or represent you. And when I first had a gallery, like I was represented and then I had shows, right? Whereas it seems from people that I've talked to now, it's more like you have several shows and then perhaps they represent your work. <laughs> It, like that it's a much longer process I think and I think galleries are very weary of taking on people because it's a business right and so it seems a lot more challenging and especially um, being in the Midwest where it's the you know the galleries are just not as accessible I think I really love I mean the main way I think I show my work is through books but I do really love having exhibitions and then the way that that can just open up so many, you know, so, so open up such a larger audience for your work through a gallery. It's definitely something that's always in the back of my head still. Well, since you brought up books, let's talk books. Okay. <laughs> I love books. I love books too. My previous guest actually was a publisher. So this is great. Okay. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, so, okay. So books, are, are you publishing yourself? Are you doing like, tell me, give me some like nuts and bolts of it. Okay. Are you publishing yourself? Somebody else publishing uh, limited editions, big editions, like what, you know, the whole sort of choices that you went through mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, professional relationships maybe you had to create or build or whatever to try and get a because i get a lot of questions from the you know the people that i talk to about like basically how can you make an artist book mm -hmm. yeah so the answer to all of those things i will definitely be more specific about all of them but the answer to all of them is yes <laughs> i have made and um, so my my book practice began in grad school i took an artist book class with charles hobson with Charles Hobson. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. And you know, it's really I funny. Him. I love him too. I think everybody loves him, which like, what a great person to be, right? <laughs> and it's funny. I'll tell the story super quick. But when I had the jury or the studio visits for the book McKnight that I just received were virtual <laughs> because they were in the spring and the jurors obviously couldn't fly and you know social distancing and all at the end of my presentation to the jurors I said because I had I began my practice making really small edition books and I was able to get them in collections that I'm really proud about uh, because I had the um, really wonderful support of my teacher and I was like I didn't even get his name out <laughs> and two of the jurors were like Charles <laughs> and their faces just Chuck lit up friend, but yeah. <laughs> and they knew <laughs> they knew right away that that's who it was and so I learned how to make handmade books in grad school. I studied with Charles Hobson and he was very supportive of my work and at the time I, I started or I became interested in making artist books because I was making, so, you know, back at SFAI with the Creonite processor, I was making 30 by 30 inch prints, which, you know, if you put a 30 by 30 inch print on the wall, it looks like this big, <laughs> it looks like, you know, a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper, not quite, but a little bit more than you wish that it did. But making those photographs, like it was like my whole stretch of my arms to hold the paper. It was as far as I could stretch to look through the grain focuser and adjust the focus knob. So it felt very physical and very large to my body. And then when they were on the wall, you stood back and looked at them. 
And so what I got so excited about making books was that it was something that you brought really close to you. You had an intimate experience. You didn't take in the entire work all at once. So it really slows down the viewer in looking at the work. And then, you know, the whole thing that for me, and especially living in the Midwest, is that books aren't tied to a specific time or location of an exhibition, which is, you know, the two ways that I can share my work mostly visually is through exhibitions or with books. And, you know, I, it's like a total dream to have a show at MoMA, right? <laughs> but it's still like people are only, only people who can live or can get to New York will see it during that specific time, right? To be super clear, I would, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Any moment I would be like. The curators really at MoMA that are listening to this podcast. <laughs> I'm available. I will put a link to her, her, her <laughs> website in the show notes. <laughs> what's so wonderful about books is they don't rely on that, right? They can, you know, a person, if they're able to own them, right? Or if they're in a public collection that people can go and see them, you can return to them as a viewer more than once you can return to them throughout the years and so you're viewing them with a whole different life experience than you did the first time you viewed the work and i have that experience with my own work as well as the books that i love but um, so i and i like that intimate aspect i like to hold things and i like to physically make things with my hands and so all of those aspects just books felt, felt like a perfect medium and then the fact that you can tell sort of an extended story not that you can't on a wall in an exhibition but i i think i have especially early on succeeded more in that in the book format. And so I started by making all handmade books that I did all the aspects of, and in additions of like five. <laughs> and the book pages were actually folded sea prints or folded gelatin silver prints. And I really thought of them as like artworks, like akin to like sculpture or like an artwork, right? And I didn't, I was not at all interested in them, in the idea of a democratic multiple. I was like, this is fine art. <laughs> and I, you know, I was able to sell them to private collectors and to institutions. And that was working really well for me. And that, that size edition felt really great because I didn't want to just make one, but I didn't want to make like 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, right? Because by that time, by number five, I was ready to go on and make the next thing, make the next work, you know, something new. So I started off making books like that, and I probably made five or six books that way. And the last book I made that way was a book called, an artist book called Bird Watching, in which I got my first grant from the Women's Studio Workshop to produce that book. And at the time, you could get the funding to produce the book in your own studio. You didn't, I don't want to say have to travel there because I actually would love to go there at some point, <laughs> but you could, you could just get funding to make the book. And it was this wonderful learning experience. And I made a complete book dummy, the pictures that would be in the book, the design, everything. And that, that was kind of really key, a key kind of learning moment. And that's how I've had books published in later on as well. But so going back to the, the bird watching one, I made that book, I wrote a whole budget and it was a thousand dollar grant, right? It was the very first grant I applied for. And I had no idea how much paper cost because my, like the paper in my book was before it was end sheets <laughs> because the photographs were the paper <laughs> and, you know, color printing paper, C-print paper is very cheap um, or definitely was then. I don't know if it is now, but it was at the time way cheaper than inkjet paper, <laughs> I'll say. But so I, I, 
I made this, you know, I said, I'm going to make an edition of 20, which felt enormous to me, but I was like, I'm getting funding. Why not? Right. And so they wrote back to me saying, we love your project. We're giving you the grant, but we only support editions of 40 or more. And I was like, no problem. <laughs> and then once I started doing the, um, the math, I realized like, oh, I would be spending a lot more than a thousand dollars to make an edition of 40 of these books. But luckily, at the same time, I got um, an Aaron Siskind grant, and that helped to fund <laughs> the other, the, the book grant. And so I made the artist's book of birdwatching, Edition of 40. Um, the Women's Studio Workshop places it in a lot of collections, which is really wonderful. And then from that, let's say I made that in 2006, I believe, and then a year Later, I did a portfolio review, the Santa Fe, oh, I'm totally blanking. It's called Center now. I feel like it might have been called something different when I did it. But I did a portfolio review and I met with a publisher, an editor at Princeton Architectural Press. And I showed them my book. And I tend to talk more when I'm nervous. Like, I don't just shut up and listen <laughs> when I'm nervous. I talk more. So I was showing her the book talking away and she was like I think we'd like to publish this and I was like and blah 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 and I was like wait what <laughs> and she's like I, I love this you know I, I we were definitely very interested in this and but the artist book you know with paper with the photographs is about an inch thick and it has gosh, maybe 12 photographs in it, right? It's a substantial object, but it's not a super long book. And so she said it would need to be turned into like 120 page text. But luckily at that point, when I made the artist book, I was maybe a third of the way into the series of photographs that are in the book. And by the time I met with her, I was finished and I had maybe 30 images in the series. So I knew that I could expand it. So I that having that artist book and this complete work, right, this complete idea, showing that to a publisher worked really well for me because they saw pretty much exactly closely, at least definitely in the text block, what they would be putting out into the world. And so I spent a year expanding that and had that published. So I had my first monograph published in 2010. And I had my son in 2009. So there, so there's like one piece of what I'm going to say next. So I had a child. <laughs> and then I had these artist books that I had made and one published book. And I went and spoke at a Society for Photographic Education conference about books at Lightwork. And I presented my book work. And afterwards, a lot of people came up to me and said, oh, we knew about bird watching, but we had no idea you'd made any other books. And at that time, I was like, I knew it. Like, I had these books that I had made in these collections that I'm super proud of. And I really do want to have books and collections. But I did sort of wonder, like, how the only way people saw them, unless they were friends or people that I had presented the books to, was online. Because all of my books you can see online, page by page. But that's not really seeing a book, right? <laughs> it's getting the idea of the book, but it's not actually experiencing the book. And so I was just like, okay, well, I, 
you know, put so much of my thought and like heart and soul into these books, I do want to reach a much larger audience. And so it was that combination of having a child, having a lot less studio time and wanting my books to reach a larger, larger audience that at that point I did start to think about the book as a democratic multiple, as something that I personally could afford to buy. And that was in a larger edition, press printed that could reach a larger audience. So after Birdwatching, I made a book that was sort of a sub-series that ended up being part of the regular series eventually of the project, The Field Guide to Snow and Ice. And I had some money left over from an honorary from a show that I wasn't expecting. Like I thought I was going to get 3000 or I thought I was going to get $300 at the end of the show left over, but I got 3000 And so I was like, wow, here's money I was totally not expecting. It's not, you know, earmarked for anything else. It's not my grocery money. <laughs> I'm going to make a press printed artist book. And so I had an offset press printed book made called On Thin Ice. And I did it in an edition of 500 <laughs> at a, a printer here. And the, the you know, the pre- press printed is just so beautiful. And I was just like, okay, this is, I was originally going to do it in 250 because I didn't want it to be precious. I wanted to be, to be able to send it out to any curator that I wanted to. I didn't want to, I didn't want to worry about it. Right. I wanted to have a lot (laughs) of them, but I found out that the cost, if I may, it was something crazy. I think it was sort of like, I would pay 2,800 for 250 or I would pay like 3,200 for 500. And I was like, you know what? 500, I'm just going for it. (laughs) And I had it made and I designed a cover that is die cut, but that kind of references this idea of hand cutting so that it had my, it had a little sense of a hand in it because from going from making books, you know, all by hand to something press printed, it just felt like, oh, it doesn't feel like my work. So to get that little bit of hand aspect or feel into the book um, that are press printed that I am publishing is really important to me. So I had really good luck with the book. I still have, you know, some of them, obviously, out of 500. But I was able to sell a lot of them. And that really opened up like, okay, I'm going to look at because of the way that my life is structured, because I do really want to get it out into the world. For now, I'm done making those very small handmade editions. And I, I'm more interested, I think, in the idea, right? The idea of the book. I still want it to be printed nicely. I still want it to have this strong conceptual connection between the content and the materials. But I do, I mean, I very much now I'm on the democratic multiple side of, <laughs> of artist books. My master's thesis was a handmade book for, with Charles, actually. Okay. And, and, over time, I, I became more about like the mass-produced book, and now in my I don't know middle age these days, uh, I'm much more back towards the handmade books again. Um, the hand of the artist with the with the prevalent you know the the sheer volume of stuff on social media and the internet and stuff like this, like the idea of sort of hand of the artist is very mm-hmm. much in my mind again. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that you know it was in my youth and then i sort of lost it for a little while and now i think it sort of goes in waves through the art world anyways so but one thing you brought up was that your handmade books early on you said you got them in collections how, um, what how do you get books in collections <laughs> well the way that i got books in collections was from charles making introductions to the librarians to the curators saying 
I know of this woman who's making these books. I really think you should look at them. And because they really valued his opinion, they said, sure. (laughs) I had the same thing. Yeah. That that's how I got in like early on now, like probably one of my proudest collections is the artist book collection at the museum of modern art. And I have, multiple books in their collection at this point. And the woman that I work with there, she, I met her through Charles. She was at his studio about his work and he was so generous and shared my work as well. And so, you know, kind of making those connections early on that then I can continue to stay connected with these people. I don't know how on earth I would have ever done it at that point or even now, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, it helps now, right? Because now when I'm, contacting curators that I haven't haven't worked with before that don't have any of my work in their collection you know it's, it's easy by email to be like I just wanted to share my work with you my books are in these collections right and it's kind of easy to promote yourself that way in writing or it's like it's easier for me to support to you know say those kind of things in writing than it is in person to that I think, you know, seeing that makes people consider like, oh, okay, we'll take a look. Not always. I mean, it's not easy, you know, and it's not easy because they get a gazillion emails and they're working on a hundred projects and all of that. But I think, I mean, I, I credit like all of my early success, which of course, you know, leads to the later successes with books to working, to having such a strong mentor situation, you know, someone being so supportive of my work early on. One, another, do you want another story about artist books? I feel like I, love <laughs> I could go, do like a whole <laughs> time of this. But so the second book that I had published, A Field Guide to Snow and Ice, I had, I had met the publisher, um, Kevin Messina of, of Silas Finch. I think probably, I want to say like four years before we worked together on this book. And I met him through a friend Larissa LeClaire, who did the Indie Photo Book Library for many years and has since donated it to the Beinecke collection at Yale. So I was hanging out with her at an event, just chatting, and she introduced me to Kevin and the the bird watching artist book was it was she was having a, a small show of books that were from the Indie Photo Book Library. And he saw that book and I if, if I'm remembering this correctly, like he contacted me then later to buy that book. And then he bought a couple other small handmade books that I had a copy left of. So he collected my work that way. We stayed in touch throughout the years. Like when I made a new book, he supported that and added it to his collection. And he published, now I'm going to, um, Brian Schumat's Graze the Mountain Send and had it printed in Minneapolis. So I got to see him a couple times as he um, was working on that book and we stayed in touch and I made sure to stay in touch with him. And it was one of these like really wonderful, like sort of slowly growing organic relationships, (laughs) which really is the way that I think things happen unless someone introduces you and says like here pay attention to this person you know this is how if I'm doing something on my own how things have gone well for me throughout the years right by understanding that you don't meet something and then you have this amazing opportunity you meet someone you develop a a relationship and then something might might (laughs) happen five years later 
So when I when I had the book dummy that I made a complete dummy except for the cover. I'm really bad about making the covers for published books. <laughs> I sort of like forget that that even needs to be a thing. Covers the first things I design. Oh really? Yeah. How funny! <laughs> I'm always like the very last, and it's almost only because I have to. I feel like. But so I had this whole book dummy made, and this book is kind of unusual in the way that it's an accordion book that can be stretched out to this 28 foot installation, or it can be looked at traditionally page by page. Uh, wait, hold on. Did you say 28 foot? Yes. Yeah. So That's folded huge. up. It is huge. And it, I wanted it, I designed it that way because I had a show of that work in the Minneapolis Institute of Art here in a like a thousand foot gallery that wrapped like a, a rectangle gallery. And so the photographs were on the wall slightly above eye level and they were maybe several inches apart and wrapped around the entire space. I realize as I'm talking, I'm using my hands a lot. So I hope I'm verbally describing this because I wanted the viewer to be surrounded by this idea of winter. So the project includes photographs of actual snow and ice and then natural elements that look like snow and ice. So gypsum sand dunes, stalagmites mixed with actual snow and ice, which there's a lot of <laughs> where I live. Not an alarmingly <laughs> large amount of. But so I wanted I made that book because I wanted it to I wanted to have the intimate experience for the viewer where they could hold it on their lap, look at it page by page. But then I also wanted this installation aspect to the book. I wanted it to sort of stretch out in the way that the prints on the gallery wall were um, in a line and could surround the viewer. So that if you're looking at it, you know, even in your peripheral vision, you're still encompassed by um, these images and this idea of winter, this idea of snow and ice. So the book was largely based off of, you know, this installation quality. And then that also, I'm doing a tangent here, but that goes into the idea too of like artist books, right? So if you have an artist book and it's exhibited, right? Oftentimes you see one page spread, uh, the book open to a page spread. So you see two pages in a vitrine and I feel like that's the same as having a photograph or a painting on the wall and covering all, but like the bottom 20th of the book or bottom eighth or bottom eighth of the painting, right? Like it's too difficult to get an idea of the work. So I'm really interested in making books that have an installation aspect to them so that if they are exhibited, there's more than just a page spread. So this was the first time that I accomplished that and that I was able to, in a gallery, I could have like a 30 foot shelf and the book is open and you can not see it completely stretched out, but you can see the whole work. You can see the whole idea, which is important to me. And so since then, that's what I've been thinking about. Like, how can books also be um, be exhibited past just one one page spread? So, so I had the book. So I had the second monograph with Silas Finch, and that was printed. It has the pages are three different widths. The book is eight inches high by ten inches wide, but the book pages are. 10 inches wide, eight inches wide, and about six inches wide. So with this idea of this overlapping and this repetition of form, you get the repetition of seeing multiple images at once with the overlapping pages, which I loved the design. I think the design made it, and seeing that made Kevin really interested in publishing this book, but it also made it extremely expensive <laughs> to make <laughs> because it had to be 
when you it were describing that, <laughs> all I heard was expensive, higher priced, yeah. like every single different size. I'm like, that just like tripled the val the price of it. Yes, like, it definitely did. My I teach a photo books class at MCAD, and the very first thing I say is like, there's no money in books. You're not Stephen King getting your advance on your next novel that's printed on newsprint, right? <laughs> or that you're this you know very famous. I don't know why I always use Stephen King, but it seems like he has like a million books. He, um, like, he is the butt of many people's jokes, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. That there's no money because it costs so much to make books. The, 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 if you want to make a book, you should not want to do it because you want to make money. You should do it because you want to get your ideas out into the world and share them with other people and the time that you put into it. <laughs> So you mentioned the the fact that like you you know contacted people who had previously bought your books and people buy them. So like what what are the methods that you sell your work? Okay. So, so social media on a website, email list, like how do you yeah keep people up to date with what's going on and and you know get connected with buyers? Yeah. So if it's not a monograph that someone else is selling for me, right? Which is definitely how I prefer it. <laughs> Cause that part, like, I don't, the part that I get excited, first I get excited about the idea. Like my, my partner jokes that like, yeah, I would probably be happy just coming up with ideas and never actually making anything. As we all would. <laughs> yes. Somehow in my head, I'm like, once I have the whole idea, it's done. <laughs> yes. I have the same thing. Cause I envision every aspect of it. I know exactly what it looks like. Yes. And it's completely done in my head. I feel no need to actually produce it because it's yeah. done. It's very, and it's fulfilling. Like I feel fulfilled. <laughs> Absolutely, I have I have dozens and dozens of projects that I've done that with that <laughs> that they, they're so perfect in my mind that I to a certain extent I almost feel like if I produce them, it'll never live up to my my imagination. Yeah, I felt the same way at times too, for sure, because <laughs> everything is fabricated perfectly in my head. <laughs> And so for the books that I make myself, I've had several and right now too. Um, so a project that I'm really excited, and I will answer your question, I promise, that I'm really excited to be working on now is a collaboration with my friend and fellow artist, Jason Vaughn. Late last year, 2019, we started a project together called A Fine Mess Press. <laughs> And we um, are putting out collaborative books together. So the books are all his work and my work combined. And we just put out our second book. And kind of circling back to what you said about like, you're now really interested in this hand, the hand being in a book, right? And how I had said it was important to me to have some evidence of my hand in the press printed books. We are making press printed books, but like the first book we made had the, when you opened it up, it's a book that you open, the spine would be in the middle and you open it up to each side to the right and the left and it slowly unfolds and then unfolds upward. So it has that installation aspect to it. But then the first two photographs when you open it up are um, tipped in prints to have like our hand, to have some like from something from our studio evidenced in that book. And then the second one, we hand bound, we sewed the binding together, printed the covers. So it had that aspect to it. But so for these books that we're making, we're making just small editions of 50. And so for these books, and then also the books that I put out on my own, the way that I sell them is by posting them on Instagram. <laughs> Early on, I did Facebook, but I just can't take that anymore. 
And so posting them on Instagram, and then I have a list of people who have bought my books before, and I would email those people that I have a new book, larger books. So I did a book myself that I got in a grant, a state arts board grant to make, and that was kind of a larger book that was at a... Um, you know, the books that I'm making now are like $25, where this one was like $75. And I wrote two collections to place that, that, you know, curators and librarians who had collected my work before. So kind of reaching out one-on-one directly. You know, I've tried to do the MailChimp newsletters, but I find it takes me like two weeks to make one of those because I'm editing it like crazy, even though if you saw it, I don't think (laughs) it looks that (laughs) perfect, but it just seems to take so much time. And then the fact that, you know, only half the people open them and then you're wondering like, did they not open them because they don't like me or did they not open them because they actually didn't get it? It went to their spam. So I kind of have given up on that, I suppose, and just written specific people about specific works and just wanting to be like, I just wanted to share this new work with you. And then also saying like, I hope that you're well, you know, I hope that you've been surviving COVID, you know, my family and I've been canoeing, (laughs) just to have that kind of personal thing. So I'm not just like, you're a book buyer, I have a book, here's my book, but to have a more kind of personal and maybe trying to have what I said, like that kind of organic connection to, because the people that I'm writing are people that I mostly that I have known, at least professionally for a while. And to, to treat them as people as well as people who can add my work to their collection. Because I just I've had I think I've had good success to that, you know, because I get emails back saying, it's so great to hear from you, you know. <laughs> I'm <laughs> horrible nice. at that stuff. I'm horrible at social media. I'm horrible at keeping contact. I, I don't even keep in contact with my own family, really. So like <laughs> it's it's just bad. Yeah. And I mean it it's a it's a good professional practice to get into to just it really ma- maintain those relationships because this is one of my things is like to a certain extent, it's easy to meet those people and and start the relationship. Like, just be like, hey, you're interesting. Hey, you're interesting too. Like, that's easy. The hard part is maintaining it. You know, trying to find the right amount of friendliness versus mm-hmm. professionalism. Because mm-hmm. if you turn in, if you actually turn into friends, then they won't treat you professionally. And and so like there's a there's a really fine line of like how mm-hmm close to be and how personal versus casual versus professional kind of thing to be with these people. And, and that it's that sort of line that uh, I'm really bad at. Mm -hmm. Well, it definitely takes work, right? Like, you know, I, as artists, we expect to put a lot of work into making the work, right? Like no one is surprised by that, right? Like maybe sometimes things take longer than you think they will, but like you expect to be putting a lot of effort into that. But I think going back to this, what we started with, with professional practice, you have to put a lot of effort. And sometimes it feels like even just as much, or maybe it just feels that way. You know, once you make a book, you know, if you were making it on your own, you still have like half the project of getting it out into the world. And that's the part that's not as fun for me, (laughs) probably for most people. And you have to really be on it and you have to do that work. And it's hard, right? Because you're like, I just spent a lot of time thinking about this work and I I am holding it in my hand and it definitely feels finished now, right? Because we joke that it felt finished as soon as we thought of it. 
And so all that extra work, because at that time, I'm always ready to go on to the next thing, right? And so there has definitely been times where I did not put as much effort as I should have into getting it out or times that I didn't follow up when I really wish I had. And that's the part where you just like that part's the work part, right? I mean, it's all work. It's definitely a lot of mental and emotional effort for any part of being an artist, but that's like the desk job part. And that's like, I think part of why I'm an artist is I don't want a desk job. (laughs) I just had to sit through, you know, a week or three days of meetings and my body feels horrible because I'm not used to sitting in a chair at a desk. And so, yeah, so doing that, you have to be really, really, really disciplined. And that, you know, I have to make myself do that stuff. It doesn't, you know, even though I feel like I'm somewhat good at it, it's still an effort. Absolutely. I'm I'm the same way. I mean, if I, any given moment of the day, if I had a choice between doing paperwork or going in the studio, I'm always going in the studio. Like, oh, I'm yeah. not going to intentionally go, hmm, paperwork. paperwork. I should do that. <laughs> Definitely. Like, no. I'll say like anytime I have to write a grant, I have like a spotless studio because I will clean every aspect of my studio before I will sit my butt down in that chair to start writing. Absolutely. I do the same thing. Like you you can't do things you don't want to do when there are other things that you could in any way procrastinate by doing. Definitely. Yeah. So. (laughs) All right. Last question for you, because you do teach professional practices. I know there's just sort of the standard stuff, but like, what's something that's a professional practice thing that people don't ask about enough that you Mm. have noticed, like that people don't think about enough? Hmm. That's a really good question. Let me see. So I think like the biggest thing is, so like we, we use this word like networking, right? Which sounds like such a dirty word, but it is a dirty word, (laughs) but the way that I've been, And I think this kind of also links to me saying like staying in touch with people. And like now when I write to someone that I have a new book, I don't just write, I have a new book. I write a few other things or I compliment them on the lecture that their institution just had that I watched and like actually honestly appreciated. Right. So if you are going about it in a really honest way that you really do love their collection for a specific reason and you are inspired and it means a lot not just to have your work somewhere right and you don't really care where but you want it to be in that collection i think like staying connected right like we said we're you know it's really hard to do even as artists who have been working for i'm gonna say decades now i feel like a grandma when i say that but like for decades that like you know it's still to work on that but to kind of i think the thing is these organic relationships right so don't pick any sort of place that you want to have your work or to publish your work like pick the specific places and try to make a connection with those people and have an organic collection and then just be aware and understand that things don't happen immediately and like nothing happens immediately now. Right. But before they didn't either. (laughs) Well, if you talk to the younger generation, they think it's all immediate via TikTok and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. But like the people who've been in the industry longer generally say, no, no, it takes It's a long road. Yeah. It's, it's a long, long trip. Like you need to think of this as kind of like for the rest of your life. And as long as like you're slowly moving forward and you're slowly having these accomplishments and improving for whatever that means for you personally, like that's how you need to think about it. I think, 
you know, otherwise you'll just like cry every month or every year, right? If you're thinking like it has to, you know, there's ups and downs. It's definitely taking the like the long view. So I think developing these organic relationships because the more your work is out there, the more people who know about your work, the more opportunities you're going to have, right? Well, but those and those connections though, the, and you because you mentioned it, and I sort of want to see if the, the, I've got this sort of right. Is that basically those connections can't be one way, and they can't be fake. Like, yeah, so you, definitely. You can't act like you are impressed with by a collection or like or even some bullshit like say like oh i really love this lecture you all did like if you didn't love it don't say you love no, it no like, absolutely just, not just it has to be sincere and honest yeah. reasonings yeah. and the the relationships have to be you not not necessarily mutual because one person's probably going to have more power than the other but yeah, they have to be the mutually beneficial let's say right Right. Yeah. And I think too, then if it is like this honest and organic thing, like then you're not, you're kind of happy actually once you do sit down, once I can get myself to sit down and be on my computer, I am happy to be corresponding with this person. Like it may, you know, that it brings me like joy to stay in touch with this person as opposed to this thing that I'm writing that I don't really mean. <laughs> but. Well, like I remember in the old days, they used to say like, you know, do the the shotgun style, just like send it out to everybody yeah. and hope somebody will connect. I and think like, curators no. can tell when you're doing that for sure. Oh, no, I <laughs> totally know that they can tell. I've spoken to curators yeah. like they, they absolutely know. I mean, these days with the sheer volume of content and knowledge and information available, you, every single one of us should take the time and research any person we want to contact. Like we should not just be blanketing out some like templated, whatever copied and pasted. Everything should be personalized to whoever you have researched. Definitely. Definitely. I know a curator that I've worked with in, you know, many different ways throughout the years that I met early on when I, moved to Minneapolis and he gave a talk to one of my classes once. And he said, the way someone said, like, how do you get a show in this space? Right. And he's like, well, first you come to the openings and you introduce yourself. And for young artists, like if you're not a young artist, or especially if you're a student, say that you're a student because everyone, not everyone, but like people understand that you might be a little awkward and they'll give you so much more space and latitude. So get into that practice, that habit really early on <laughs> when you're not like you're you know like a 40 year old adult <laughs> why are you so awkward <laughs> he's like first you come to the shows and you introduce yourself and I see you at all of the shows and you say hi and maybe you tell me something you're inspired by or the way something's installed and we have a short conversation and then when you have shows you send me a postcard well, no, no. And then come back to the next opening th- oh, like yeah. a month or two months or three Definitely. months or six months later. Like you have, it, you have to build these be relationships presence. Be this, like, Yes. Yeah. Be a, like an interested presence, right. In where, whatever like art community that you're a part of. Like if you want them to be interested in you, you have to be interested in them. Absolutely. Right. A hundred percent. That's so well said. And then he said, the next thing that you do is that you send me a postcard to your show, even if it's a group show and you say, hi, so-and-so, I, you know, I would love for you to check out this show. So I know that you're sending the postcard to me and not just to like every single art space in town. 
And then like later on, you ask me for a studio visit and we start talking about your work. And then maybe if it's a good fit, right? Because it doesn't matter if somebody likes your work or not. It also has to be a good fit with whatever programming they're doing. And you as an artist have to be a good fit, right? To have a relationship with the spaces that you're working with, then maybe you'll have a show. And, you know, so all of that, you know, is a years long process. And like that, I think for people to understand that, I think it feels slowly attainable as opposed to this one, you know, amazing moment that happens out of thin air. Well, the other thing that a lot of people don't understand it too is like when you're doing that, so like you just gave the scenario basically of making a relationship with one curator. <laughs> at, at, at any given moment, you're juggling six of those at the same time mm -hmm. or a dozen yeah. of those at the same time. Like, you know, you know, one month you're maybe like talking to two people that, that could potentially do a show at XY institution or gallery and also talking to a publisher and a, and a, you know, an editor and a whatever else. Like you, we do, it's not like, it's not a one-to-one -one thing. Like if I put the work in on this one person, that right. that one person is going to answer all of my career. Oh, right. needs. Absolutely. Like mm -hmm. you are, you are having to juggle constant relationships. And like my personal thing that I keep, I ran into a lot in my career is that sometimes like when you start being seen with and being associated with one curator gallery space whatever other opportunities get closed because mm. they, they don't mm. want to compete or they don't mm -hmm. want to have you know whatever sort of political reasons for it but sometimes there's the the nature of like you have to be thoughtful on who you even associate with because sometimes other opportunities can be turned away depending on who you work with yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. <laughs> it's not. I mean, it, it's to a certain extent, it's a little bit of like office politics, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sad, but true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a number of other guests that I've had have talked about like issues of uh, being a parent or being a, 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 a mother, uh, mm -hmm. specifically it's, a, it's more of a female thing than a male thing. Uh, did that, uh, you know, choosing to have a child, did that it impact your career in any way? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and to anyone who is a young mother out there or who just wants a, a voice to sympathize with, it's really, really hard. I still, so my son is 11 and so I have one child. Um, my partner also teaches. We're super lucky. Um, we teach on different days even. So that's convenient <laughs> as far as like the, just the basics of needing childcare at certain points, but it's really hard to be an artist and a mother and a teacher. And the only way I feel like, and I don't really feel like I'm making it work right now. I feel like I'm not so great at anything at this point. And having been a mother for 24 seven, every single day since March, is not is I am kind of losing it to be honest. Like it's really really hard. I am definitely the person who wants time alone, and I'm used to having two to three studio days by myself every single week. And so I'm definitely very very much struggling. I feel like I've gotten by because I've had the garden and outside <laughs> throughout the summer. And even though we have some really wonderful times, like you know we go canoeing and we eat outside, and my son and I have been making cakes together. There's still like 
12 hours in the day <laughs> that you have to fill up. <laughs> so it's like those kind of Instagram moments like, oh, it looks like you're having this lovely summer. I'm like, yeah, but we're also yelling and crying <laughs> and, and struggling. But so the way that I have made it work, because I don't think it's easy. And the only way that I have made it work is to like have spaces. So when I go to teach, I'm not going to teach right now because of COVID. I'm at home teaching and that's why I'm not doing so well <laughs> productively and at days emotionally is because it's all mushed together. Like the only way that I'm able to do this is like to have it in certain slots. So when I go to teach, I'm at school and I'm just a teacher. I will, you know, share other experiences as they come up and are appropriate with students about my personal life. But like, I'm a teacher and I have this one role to do. And then I have my studio days and I'm an artist and all I, I have a very disciplined studio practice in, I want to say normal life, but I'm, I'm hoping it goes back to normal where like I have studio days that no one else is around and I have quiet and then that's when I can think. And so then I'm just an artist and I don't worry about what I'm going to make for dinner or my kids camp or anything like during that time, I'm able to really focus. And then I have the time which, you know, before COVID was in the morning and in the evening and on the weekends, I'm a mom and I can be really focused on being a mom during that time because I've had my studio time. I've had my teaching time, which is also this very like the studio classes that I teach are just like really creative and inspiring to my practice as well. Like I learn from my students. So because I can separate those, that's how I can do it. And it wasn't until my son started school, like in kindergarten, that I felt like, okay, I am a person again. I am a person who like has these different roles. Well, that's one of the things that's come up in the past is a number of women artists have talked about how like the, oftentimes there's like a six-year gap in their CV because they're not as productive in those first six years, like between birth and children going to school, basically. Yeah. So they, they end up having like a gap space in their CV and it's difficult to get back into the art world. So like they won't accept it because they'll be like, well, what have you been doing for the last six years? You've got nothing. And you're like keeping a human being alive. <laughs> yeah, but that's not um, new art. No, no, it's true. And I mean, I felt super lucky to have the bird watching, but the published book come out when my son was like 10 months old. Like I was so thankful to have that where like, you know, it was something substantial in my career that was happening. I had a gallery show at that time. And then you know, so I think he was already in school, but then the, the next project, but I was definitely determined when, because I had a, he was born when I was 35. So I already had this fully established adult life. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I also had a child, not that sounded like it was a surprise. It wasn't a surprise, <laughs> uh, but like, you know, then we, you know, had a child. And so I was determined to keep my my part, like my work, because that felt so closely tied to my identity as a person. And so I think early on, I didn't have as much studio time, but I, the time that I did have, I was like a mom. I only taught one class and then I made work, but I didn't see friends, I realized, for like two years. Like the, my really close friends who would come to me, I saw, but I didn't go to openings. I didn't participate in the art community. And then it finally, I was just like, okay, I actually need this also. Like I need to go to lectures. I need to, <laughs> to do more. So I think being maybe a little bit older and being so attached to that part of my life, I, I did keep going. But I think my greatest fear is like 
like right now, you know, I just am starting this fellowship, but I have no studio days. And how am I like, I clearly just need to get it together somehow to have studio time while my son is home. But I'll even just say this, like we talked about it, but like, my I'm able to talk to you without a bunch of noise in the background because I sent my husband and my son to the store and I know right now still because we're still talking they're like driving around I told my partner I'm like don't come back until I text you and he's like got it so you know him being a supportive person to begin with but then also an artist understanding he's like that's fine but you know I can't do this very often (laughs) thank you for taking the time well, I like I think because I just I want to be present, right? I want to be present in the thing that I'm doing, and I think that that's maybe the hardest thing as a parent right now, being present, you know, as a parent, as an artist, as a teacher, when it's all just lumped together. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to share all these <laughs> ideas and thoughts. And it's been really nice talking to someone. And even though I'm only seeing you on a screen, it's so nice to see another person and talk. <laughs>